Chapter 3, Part 2 of The Star of Gettysburg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave K. of Southern Minnesota. The Star of Gettysburg by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 3 Jackson Moves. Part 2. They saw that he was walking again with the minister, but that he was surrounded by at least a dozen little girls, every one of whom demanded in turn that he shake her hand. He was busily engaged in this task when the whole group passed out of sight into the manse. The northern newspapers denounce us as passionate and headstrong, with all the faults of the cavaliers, said St. Clair. I only wish they could see General Jackson as he is. Lee and Jackson come much nearer being Puritans than their generals do. Harry that night, as he sat in the little anteroom of Jackson's quarters, awaiting orders, heard again the low tone of his general praying. The words were not audible, but the steady and earnest sound came to him for some time. It was late, and all the soldiers were asleep or at rest. No sound came from the army, and besides Jackson's voice there was none other save the sighing of the winds down from the mountains. Harry, as he listened to the prayer, felt a deep and overwhelming sense of solemnity and awe. He felt that it was at once a petition and a presage. Sitting there in the half-dark, mighty events were foreshadowed. It seemed to him that they were about to enter upon a struggle more terrible than any that had gone on before and those had been terrible beyond the anticipation of anybody. The omens did not fail. Jackson's army marched the next morning, turning southward along the turnpike, in order to effect the junction with Lee and Longstreet. All Winchester had assembled to bid them farewell, the people confident that the army would win victory, but knowing its cost now. There was water in Harry's eyes as he listened to the shouts and cheers and saw the young girls waving the little Confederate flags. "'If good wishes can do anything,' Harry said, "'then we ought to win.' "'So we should. I'm glad to have the good wishes, but, Harry, when you're up against the enemy, they can't take the place of cannon and rifle. Look at Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire. See how straight and precise they are? But both are suffering from a deep disappointment. They started their chess game again last night, Colonel Talbot to make the first move with his king. But before he could decide upon any course with that king, the orders came for us to get ready for the march. The chessmen went into the box, and they'll have another chance, probably after we beat Burnside. They went up on the valley, through the scenes of triumphs remembered so well. All around them were the battlefields of the spring, and there were the massive ridges of the Massanuttons that Jackson had used so skillfully, not clothed in green now, but with the scanty leaves of closing autumn. Neither Harry nor any of his comrades knew just where they were going. That secret was locked fast under the old slouch hat of Jackson and Harry, like all the others, was content to wait. Old Jackson knew where he was going, and what he meant to do, 
and wherever he was going, it was the right place to go. And whatever he meant to do was just the thing that ought to be done. His extraordinary spell over his men deepened with passing days. As they went farther southward, they saw sheltered slopes of the mountains, where the foliage yet glowed in the reds and yellows of autumn. Purple patches on the landscape. Over ridges to both east and west, the fine haze of Indian summer yet hung. It was a wonderful world, full of beauty. The air was better and nobler than wine, and the creeks and brooks flowing swiftly down the slopes flashed in silver. There were no enemies here. The people, mostly children and women, nearly all the men had gone to war, came out to cheer them as they passed, and to bring them what food and clothing they could. The valley never wavered in its allegiance to the south, although great armies fought and trod back and forth over its whole course through all the years of the war. They turned east and defiled through a narrow pass in the mountains, where the sheltered slopes again glowed in yellow and gold. Jackson, in somber and faded gray, rode near the head of the corps on his faithful little sorrel. His chin sunk upon his breast, his eyes apparently not seeing what was about them, the worn face somber and thoughtful. Harry knew that the great brain under that old slouch hat was working every moment. All was working with an intensity and concentration of which few men were ever capable. Harry, following close behind him, invariably watched him, but he could never read anything of Jackson's mind from his actions. Then came the soldiers in broad and flowing columns, that is, they seemed to Harry, in the intense autumn light, to flow like a river of men and horses and steel beautiful to look on now, but terrible in battle. "'We're better than ever,' said the sober Dalton. "'Antietam stopped us for the time, but we are stronger than we were before that battle.' "'Stronger and even more enthusiastic,' Harry concurred. "'Ah, there goes the Cajun band, and the other bands, and our boys singing our great tune. Listen to it. Southerns hear your country call you, up, lest worse than death befall you. To arms, to arms, to arms in Dixie. Lo, all the beacon fires are lighted. Let all hearts now be united. To arms, to arms, to arms in Dixie. The chorus of the battle song, so little in words, so great in its thrilling battle note, was taken up by more than a score of thousand and the vast volume of its sound, confined in narrow defiles, rolled like thunder, giving forth mighty echoes. Harry was moved tremendously, and he saw Jackson himself come out of his deep thought, and lift up his face that glowed. "'It's certainly great,' said Dalton to Harry. "'It would drag a man from the hospital and send him into battle. I know now how the French Republican troops on the march felt,' when they heard the Marseillaise. But the words don't seem to me to be the same that I heard at Bull Run. No, they're not, but what does that matter? That thrilling music is all the same, and it's enough. Already the origin of the renowned battle song was veiled in doubt, and different versions of the words were appearing. But the music never changed, and every step responded to it. 
the army passed through the defile entering another portion of the valley forded a fork of the shenandoah crossed the lurie valley and then entered the steep passes of the blue ridge here they found autumn gone and winter upon them as the passes rose and the mountains clothed in pine forests hung over them the soft haze of indian summer fled and in its place came a low gray sky somber and chill sharp winds cut them but the blood flowed warm and strong in their veins as they trod the upward path between the ridges once more a verse of the defiant dixie rolled and echoed through the lofty and bleak pine forest how the south's great heart rejoices at your cannon's ringing voices to arms for faith betrayed and pledges broken wrongs inflicted insults spoken to arms advance the flag of dixie now on the heights the last shreds and patches of autumn were blown away by the winds of winter the sullen skies lowered continually flakes of snow whirled into their faces but they merely bent their heads to the storm and marched steadily onward they had not been called jackson's foot cavalry for nothing they were proud of the name and they meant to deserve it more thoroughly than ever i take it said dalton to harry that some change has occurred in the northern plans the army of the potomac must be marching along a new line so do i the battle will be fought in lower country and we will be with lee and longstreet in a day or two so it looks jackson stopped twice a full day each time for rest but at the end of the eighth day including the two for rest he had driven his men one hundred and twenty miles over mountains and across rivers they also passed through cold and heavy snow but they now found themselves in lower country at the village of orange courthouse the larger town of fredericksburg lay less than forty miles away harry was not familiar with the name of fredericksburg but it was destined to be before long one that he could never forget in after years it was hard for him to persuade himself that famous names were not famous always the name of some village or river or mountain would be burned into his brain with such force and intensity that the letters seemed to have been there since the beginning it lacked but two days of december when they came to orange courthouse but they heard that the northern front was more formidable and menacing than ever burnside had shown more energy than was expected of him he had formed a plan to march upon richmond and despite the alterations in his course he was clinging to that plan he had at the least so the scouts said one hundred and twenty thousand men and four hundred guns the north moreover which always commanded the water had gunboats on the rappahannock below fredericksburg they would be as they were throughout the war a powerful arm harry knew too the temper and resolution of the north the slow cold wrath that could not be checked by one defeat or half a dozen antietam as he saw it had merely been a temporary check to the confederates arms where the forces of lee and jackson had fought off at least double their number 
The northern men could not yet boast of a single clean-cut victory in the battles of the East. But they were coming on again as stern and resolute as ever. Defeat seemed to serve only as an incentive to them. After every one, recruits poured down from the north and west to lift anew the flag of the Union. There was something in this steady, unyielding resolve that sent a chill through Harry. It was possible that men who came on and who never ceased coming would win in the end. The South, and he was sanguine that such men as Lee and Jackson could not be beaten, might wear itself out in the very winning of victories. The chill came again when he counted the resources pitted against his side. He was a lad of education and great intelligence, and he had no illusions now about the might of the North and its willingness to fight. But youth, in spite of facts, can forget odds as well as loss. The doubts that would come at times were always dispelled when he looked upon the glorious army of northern Virginia. It was now nearly eighty thousand strong, with an almost unbroken record of victory. Trusting absolutely in its leadership and supremely confident that it could whip any other army on the planet. Its brilliant generals were gathered with Jackson or with Lee and Longstreet. They were as confident as their soldiers, and no movement of the enemy escaped them. Stuart, with his plume and sash, at which no man now dared to scoff, hung with his horsemen like a fringe on the flank of Burnside's own army, cutting off the Union scouts and skirmishers, and hiding the plans of Lee. Messengers brought news that Burnside would certainly cross the Rappahannock, covered by the Union artillery, which was always far superior in weight and power to that of the South. Harry heard that the passage of the river would not be opposed, because the Southern army could occupy stronger positions farther back, but he did not know whether the rumors were true. The word now came, and they went forward from Orange Courthouse toward Fredericksburg to join Lee and Longstreet. When they marched toward the second Manassas, they had suffered from an almost intolerable heat and dust. Now they advanced through a winter that seemed to pour upon them every variety of discomfort. Heavy snows fell, icy rains came, and fierce winds blew. The country was deserted and the roads beneath the rain and snow and the passage of great armies disappeared. Vast muddy trenches marked where they had been, and the mud was deep and sticky, covering everything as it was ground up, and coloring the whole army with the same hue. Somber and sullen skies brooded over them continually. Not even Jackson's foot cavalry could make much progress through such a sea of mud. A battle would be a relief, said Harry, as he rode with the Invincibles, having brought some order to Colonel Talbot. There's nothing like this to take the starch out of men. Isn't that so, Happy? It depresses ordinary persons like you, Harry, replied Langdon, but a soul like mine leaps up to meet the difficulties. Mud as an obstacle is nothing to me. As I was riding along here, I was merely thinking about the different kinds we have. I note that this Virginia mud is tremendously sticky, 
inclined to be red in color, and I should say that on the whole it's not as handsome as our South Carolina mud, especially when I see our production at its best. What kind of mud do you have in Kentucky, Harry? All kinds. Red, black, brown, and every other shade. Well, there's a lot of snow mixed with this, too. I think that at the very bottom there is a layer of snow, and then the mud and the snow come in alternate layers until within a foot of the top, after which it's all mud. Harry, old Jack doesn't believe it's right to fight on Sunday. But do you believe it's right to fight in winter, when the armies have to waste so much strength and effort in getting at one another? He was interrupted by the mellow tones of a bugle, and a brilliant troop of horsemen came trotting toward them through a field where the mud was not so deep. They recognized Stuart in his gorgeous panoply at their head, and behind him was Sherburne. Stuart rode up to the Invincibles, Colonel Leonidas Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire gravely saluted the brilliant apparition. "'I am General Stuart,' said Stuart, lifting the plumed hat, "'and I am glad to welcome the vanguard of General Jackson. May I ask, sir, what regiment is this?' "'It is the South Carolina Regiment, known as the Invincibles,' said Colonel Talbot proudly, as he lifted his cap in a return salute. "'Although it does not now contain many South Carolinians, alas, most of the lads who have marched so proudly away from Charleston have gone to their last rest, and their places have been filled chiefly by Virginians. But the Virginians are a brave and gallant people, sir, almost equal in fire and dash to the South Carolinians.' Stuart smiled. He knew that it was meant as a compliment to the first class, and as such he took it. "'I think, sir,' he said, "'that I am speaking to Colonel Leonidas Talbot.' "'You are, sir, and the gentleman on my right is the second in command of this regiment, Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire, a most noble gentleman and valiant and skilful officer. "'We have met you before, sir. You saved us before Bull Run.' when we were beleaguered at a fort in the valley. "'Ah, I remember,' exclaimed Stuart, "'and a most gallant fight you were making. And I recognize this young officer, too. He was the messenger who met me in the fields. Your hand, Mr. Kenton.' He stretched out his own hand in its long yellow buckskin glove, and Harry, flushing with pride, shook it warmly. "'It is good of you, General,' he said, "'to remember me.' I am glad to remember you, and all like you. Is General Jackson near? About a quarter of a mile back, sir. I am a member of his staff, and I'll ride with you to him. Thanks. Lead the way. Harry turned with Stuart and Sherburne, and they soon reached General Jackson, who was plodding slowly on little sorrel, his chin sunk upon his breast as usual, the lines of thought deep in his face. General Stuart bowed low before him, and the plumed hat was lifted high. The knight paid deep and willing deference to the Puritan. Jackson's face brightened. He wished plain apparel upon himself, but he did not disapprove of the reverse upon General Stuart. "'You are very welcome, General Stuart,' he said. "'I thank you, sir. I have come to report to you, sir, that—' General Burnside's army is gathering in great force upon the other side of the Rappahannock, and that we are massed along the river and back of Fredericksburg. General Burnside will cross, will he not? 
So we think. He can lay a pontoon bridge, and he has great artillery to protect it. The river, as you know, sir, has a width of about two hundred yards at Fredericksburg, and the northern batteries can sweep the farther shore. I'm sorry that we've elected to fight at Fredericksburg, said General Jackson thoughtfully. The Rappahannock will protect General Burnside's army. Stuart gazed at him in astonishment. I don't understand you, sir, he said. You say that the Rappahannock will protect General Burnside when it seems to be our defense? My meaning is perfectly clear. When we defeat General Burnside at Fredericksburg, he will retreat across the river, over his bridge or bridges, and we shall not be able to get at him. We will win a great victory, but we will not gather the fruits of it, because of our inability to reach him. Oh, I see, said Stuart, the light breaking on his face. You consider the victory already won, sir. Beyond a doubt. Then if you think so, General Jackson, I think so too, said Stuart, as he saluted and rode away. End of chapter 3, part 2 Recording by Dave Kay.